good morning. I'm Scott Ashman, for those of you who, um, who I don't know. Um, and I'm an elder here at the church. And uh, we've been, us elders have been doing some of the preaching this August and, uh, and beginning of September, and then we'll get back to the, uh, the regular uh, uh, schedule starting in September. But uh, we'll be looking today at Luke chapter 20, verses 41 to 47. I'm entitling this message, Questions. You know, in many ways, the story of your life is going to consist of the questions you ask and the answers that you find to those questions. Uh, From the time you're a little child, from the time you're old enough to talk, you start hearing questions from people. Have you noticed, where's mommy? Who's that? What's a cow say? And of course, those questions that we ask for toddlers, you know, we're trying to get them to learn how to speak and and, uh, recognize people and sounds. But it's not many months later than the toddlers start asking us questions. Um, And parents start to question, why are they asking so many questions? Why is little Emma asking all these questions? Research has said that four-year-old girls actually ask the most questions, uh, as many as 400 a day. We've, we've had a few of them in our house. Um, and they can be great questions. Why is water wet? Where does the sky end? What are shadows made of? Do fish have eyelashes? All good questions. This week I was at the uh, Only Christian School back to school night, and a kindergartner uh, asked me a question, a burning question. He said, how old are you? And I said, well, how old do you think I am? And he said, 20? And I said, well, a wee bit older than 20. He's 100? Lisa assured me that that's pretty typical of kindergartners. Um, Well, Jesus might have felt like he was dealing with toddlers when he was uh, dealing with these religious leaders in Luke chapter 20. Uh, This whole chapter, uh, it's just been one question after another that Jesus has been fielding. But these questions were not simple little questions. But he had been facing these relentless questions because they were trying to trap him uh, by something that he said that would give them grounds to arrest him. Um, And finally, at the end of this chapter, Jesus finally gets the chance to ask them a question. And that's our text, Luke chapter 20, verses 41 to 47. So this is the word of God. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, and love greetings in the marketplaces, and the best seats in the synagogue, and in places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So we're going to look at three questions that this passage raises today. Um, The three questions are, whose son is the Christ? That's what Jesus asked them. The second question, who am I? And the third one, I'm calling the ultimate question. So whose son is the Christ? Let's look at the background and the context of this passage. 
Uh, Jesus is, is, is in his last week before he's going to be crucified by hanging on a Roman cross. And on Sunday, the week before, or th- this week, um, the week before Passover was to start, of course, you know, he entered Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. And the people greeted him with these shouts, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The people were welcoming their long-expected Messiah. And the religious leaders ordered Jesus to silence the crowds. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, even the stones would cry out. That was Sunday. On Monday, Jesus returned to Jerusalem And he went into the temple courts and cleared them out of all these money changers and those who were charging exorbitant prices for people to buy uh, animals for sacrifice on the Passover. And after that, he set up his teaching ministry. And he, right in the temple courts, right under the noses of these Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes, here Jesus was teaching in the temple courts. And the Jewish religious leaders were furious that he would do such a thing. And they were seeking, it says at the end of chapter 19, they were seeking for a way to arrest him and destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. So that brings us to Luke chapter 20. And as I mentioned, Jesus has been fielding all these questions because they're looking for a way to arrest him. Um, But they couldn't find any way to do that because every time Jesus gave them an answer to their questions, he was exposing them for their hypocrisy and their corruption. And finally, in verses 39 and 40, as we saw last last week, they gave up the tactic. It says, Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared ask him any question. We're done. We're going to stop trying this. Um, and Jesus seized that opportunity to ask them, the question that's in our passage today. And according to Matthew's account of this incident, he actually starts by asking them, what do you say about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they answer, David's. So that's kind of the background behind what Luke starts with in his passage. And it was a vitally important question in that day because everybody was looking forward to this Messiah. Who would this Messiah be? They had been expecting a Messiah since the time of Moses. Um, Through the time of King David, the prophets had been speaking of this Messiah and when he would come. And there was great expectation that he'd be coming soon. Um, He would be a great king. The prophet said he would be a prophet and a priest, which kings weren't in those days. Um, His coming would be met with many miracles. It said in Isaiah, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Kind of sounds like Jesus' ministry, and yet they couldn't put that together. So Jesus simply asked them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And the answer really was one word, David's. Was their answer correct? Yes. Was their answer adequate and complete? Absolutely not. See, they were focusing simply on Christ as being a great political leader, a king who was going to come and release them from their oppression, their bondage to Rome. And that's where we pick up Luke's account again in uh, chapter 20, verses 41 to 44. So he says to them, 
after they said, he's David's son, he says to them, then how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For, for David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he the son? What is Jesus asking them? See, what Jesus is doing is he's taking a favorite verse from the Jewish scriptures, Psalm 110, verse 1, and he's asking them about their understanding of what does it say about the Messiah. So we're going to look at Psalm 110 briefly. Psalm 110 was one of the most important um, psalms in terms of its impact in defining for people who the Messiah would be. Psalm 110 is the psalm that is quoted more often in the New Testament than any other. It's the psalm that Jesus often referred to. On the day of Pentecost, when Peter gave his initial sermon, he extensively taught from Psalm 110. Large sections of the book of Hebrews talk about Psalm 110. So when we look at Psalm 110, verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And it's important when you look at this psalm in Hebrew, at least. You don't see it in the Greek as well. But when you look at the psalm, there's, there's two words for Lord up there. There's Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's God's covenant name, Jehovah. And then the second Lord is Adonai. Master, ruler, something that you might use to address a king. So here you have in the psalm, written by the mighty King David, and he's calling this future Messiah, my Lord. Now, back in a society like that, a king would not address anyone as my Lord. Certainly not a descendant. So everyone knew, okay, well, the Messiah would be a descendant of David. And yet here's David calling his descendant, this Messiah to come, Lord, Master. And Jesus says, how can this be? That was never done. And what he's doing is he's challenging them on their idea of who the Messiah was going to be. See, they've been thinking for centuries that the Messiah would be a king just like David, who would have the success and the, and the, the wealth uh, of David, a political ruler. And yet Jesus is saying, so how is it that David calls him Lord? According to this verse also, it says that he will um, he'll be, he'll be one who would be seated at God's right hand. And the right hand of God was often used in the Old Testament as a place of honor, a place of power, a place of salvation. So Jesus, you know, Jesus is saying, you guys are missing the Messiah because your, your understanding of the Old Testament, your understanding... Of, of God's word is faulty. They had put the Messiah in a little box. And Jesus didn't fit their picture of what the Messiah ought to be. And Jesus is shattering their little box and saying, you guys need to go back and look to see because your Messiah is in your midst and you're rejecting him. Well, now up to this point, it might seem to you and you say, well, that's a very interesting religious debate that they were having back in the first century whose son is the Christ, and maybe if you're really honest, your answer today might be, why should I care? What's the point of all that? What, is, what difference does that make in my life? And that was certainly my attitude in, in my teenage years. Why would I even care 
about, you know, all these characters 2,000 years ago and these debates that Jesus had with religious leaders in his day. What does that have to do with it? See, when I was a teenager, I was too busy answering another question, and that's the one on the screen in front of you. Who am I? You know, was I a dork because I couldn't make my junior high basketball team? Was I a nerd because I had thick glasses and liked math class? Was I ugly because girls didn't take much notice of me? See, I was trying to figure out who I was. I didn't really care about who, you know, who these people back in the Bible were. And I want to suggest to you that all of us go through our lives trying to figure out, who am I? Many adults try to answer that question based on the external facade that they put up in their life, the size of their house, the car they drive, the the boat they own, the salary they earn, the people that they socialize with. These all define, who am I? And the religious leaders that were asking all these questions, Jesus points out kind of the facade that they're putting up for themselves. Look at verses 45 to 47 again. It says, And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Pretty harsh words. So when the scribes would answer this question, who am I? Well, it was based on the robes that they wore that conveyed their knowledge and their their scholarship. They would answer the question, who am I? Based on the greeting they would receive in the marketplace. Oh, wonderful scribe. They would answer, who am I? Based on the seats of honor that they got in the synagogue and at feasts and banquets. But Jesus defined them very differently, if you notice. When he looked at their lives, he saw men who were full of injustice. They were devouring widows' houses. You know, widows were the most vulnerable people in that society, and they were somehow devouring their houses, their wealth. They were making long, pretentious prayers. And and Jesus says, God's not listening to your long prayers. See, their, their injustice and their prideful religious shows were accomplishing only one thing for them, according to Jesus, greater condemnation when they went to stand before God one day. They were all trying to impress people, but God was not impressed at all. So the question before the house today is, who are you? If someone asked you that question, who are you? How would you answer that? Are you defined by the successes or failures on your report card or on the athletic field? Are you defined by your income or by your lack of income? Are you defined by your singleness or your failed marriage or your outwardly successful marriage? Are you defined by your kids' successes or failures? Are you defined by the job that you have or the job that you don't have? Who am I? It's the question that we spend our days trying to answer, whether we do it consciously or subconsciously. And Satan is happy to allow you to keep answering that question based on your external circumstances, based on what other people say about you. Human opinion can be very fickle, 
One day I'm great because someone gave me a compliment. One day I'm awful because someone said something bad about me behind my back. Who are you? Who am I? And I want to make a statement now. And that is that you'll never be able to truly answer that question of who I am until you're able to answer the ultimate question. The ultimate question. What is that? Well, the ultimate question is ultimate because it defines every other question in your life. How you answer the ultimate question defines everything you do and everything you are. And the interesting thing is, it's not a question that you answer um, by writing it down or by what you say, but it's more how you answer it with your life. See, we're a test-taking society, aren't we? Kids are getting back to school. Um, and most of the most important tests that we take are multiple choice. You get a question, you get five answers, choose wisely, circle the right one, take your number two pencil and make sure you color in the circle just right, choose wisely and you will be rewarded, choose poorly and you will suffer the consequences. We understand taking tests, but that's not how it is with the ultimate question. See, the ultimate question is answered more with an essay, and it's the essay of your life. The one who scores the answer is not looking for whether you somehow come up with the right answer, but whether you believe it, and whether your life shows that you actually believe it. So what is the ultimate question? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That's the ultimate question I would say to you today. And people answer that question in a thousand different ways. The religious leaders in Jesus' day had already answered the question. He was a backcountry miracle man, a carpenter from a back, back bay uh, village in, called Nazareth. A Messiah imposter that had to be destroyed, needed to be destroyed immediately. Jesus' disciples had been with him for three years... And they were still trying to answer that question. You remember back in, in Matthew, Jesus asked them, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Yet only a few months later, Peter denied that he even knew Jesus. But eventually, Peter became, became the recognized leader of the early church and testified about who is Jesus to the very men who sentenced Jesus to death. Who is Jesus? A lot of people, by their actions, believe that Jesus is kind of like a religious charm that they can run to when things are getting out of control in their lives, but quickly forget about when things have gotten back in order. Who is Jesus? Some people, by their actions, see Jesus as kind of an insurance policy. They confess sometime in their life that Jesus is Savior and Lord, and convince themselves that no matter how sinful they run their lives and how unrepentantly they run their lives, they're convinced that somehow Jesus is their get-out-of-hell-free card that they can pull out on the last day and somehow get into heaven. Mahatma Gandhi, the famous Indian leader, said about Jesus, To me, he was one of the greatest teachers humanity has ever had. I refuse to believe that there is now exists or has ever existed a person who has not made use of his example to lessen his sins, even though 
he might have done it without realizing it. He goes on, the lives of all have in some greater or lesser degree been changed by his presence, his actions, and his words spoken by the divine voice. Sounds pretty good, but what Gandhi was really saying was he was the greatest example who has ever lived, the greatest teacher, perhaps, or one of the greatest teachers. Who is Jesus? Some people think of Jesus as their guilty conscience. They know when they've done something wrong, they look and there's a little man on the cross who's looking down at them disapprovingly. And they convince themselves that they're going to try harder next time to please that man on the cross. Some people see Jesus as their helper or even their servant. When they get into a bind, they pray to Jesus uh, to get them free of their present circumstances. And when their circumstances don't change, what do they say to him? You're fired. Where were you when I needed you? Right? Who is Jesus? You know, we all want a very predictable, tame Jesus. One who deals with us kind of in a, in a deal. You know, if you pray, if you read your Bible, then I will bless your family. And I will give you a happy life free of suffering. That's the Jesus that we want in some ways. But Jesus will have none of this. He will not be our lucky charm. He will not be your insurance policy. He will not simply be a great example to follow. He will not be your guilty conscience. He will not be your helper. He certainly will not be your servant. He is God Almighty. And he will not accept any less role in your life. Just when you think you've figured Jesus out, and you say, okay, I, I figured out how to make a deal. If I do this, then he does that. He will show you that he's in control. And he does all things for his glory and for his kingdom, not mine. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the second person of the Godhead. God himself, who took on flesh. It says that he created all things by the power of his word. And he holds them all together. That's a mind blower right there. He's holy and loving as we were singing, merciful and mighty. The only savior of mankind, the one who conquered death and hell. Who is Jesus? I would submit to you that Jesus must be your Lord and King over everything or he will be nothing at all to you. St. Augustine put it this way. Jesus is not valued at all unless he was valued above all. As Christians, we think we, you know, we have our religious parts of our life, and we have to try to keep the religious part of our life all together. Then we have the secular side of our life. And, you know, that's kind of our business. And there's the Jesus' business and our business. And Jesus says, no, it's all spiritual. It's all mine, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus. And once you answer the question, who is Jesus? I would say that every other question starts to take on greater focus. For example, who am I? Who am I in light of who Jesus is? Well, we, we see in the Bible that I am made by God and for God. I was created in the image of God. I am not my own, but belong body and soul to God. Yes, I am a great and miserable sinner and have nothing to merit God's favor. But 
in Jesus. I am declared righteous in Jesus Christ, having the applause and joy of my heavenly Father. In Jesus, I am forgiven of all my sins, past, present, and future. In Jesus, I was chosen before the foundation of the world to be conformed to his image. In Jesus, I am adopted to be a beloved son of God. Yes, I am wasting away bodily day by day, but in Jesus, I am being renewed day by day. In Jesus, I am the temple of the Holy Spirit and daily need the filling of his spirit. In Jesus, I am a warrior on God's side in a battle for people's hearts and souls, having love as my most effective weapon. In Jesus, I am invincible until that time where God ordains that I die. In Jesus, I am eternal and have full assurance of spending eternity with, with him in heaven. Once you know who Jesus is, you can answer that question of who am I and drop all those facades and the ways we try to define our lives by our external circumstances. When you state that Jesus is God Almighty, it answers every other question in your life. What should I do with my time? Jesus has an answer for that. What should I do with my money? Jesus has an answer for that. How should I talk? Where should I live? How should I work? Where should I work? Who should I hang out with? When Jesus is Lord, those questions are all in his domain. And that might sound really overbearing. Why do I want someone else telling me how to run my life so extensively? But the fact is that because Jesus is God, because he created you, we believe that he alone can tell us how to run our lives that will fill us with joy and freedom and even rest. Because he is good. As we learn to trust him and obey him, we learn that he has a better plan for our lives than I do. And that's really hard to accept because I think I'm a pretty good planner for my own life. But Jesus says, no. I've got the plan for my life, for your life, and it's a better plan than you can come up with. Charles T. Studd was a celebrated athlete in the 19th century England, and Jesus got a hold of his life. And he spent the rest of his life doing hard, pioneering missions work in China and India, in Africa, he founded the missions agency that our own Matt and Annette Cummings serve with today. And his motto was, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, again, who is Jesus? If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Think about the logic, right? If that's who Jesus is, what does that mean for my life? If he sacrificed that much for me, is there any sacrifice that's too great to make for him? And do you think C.T. Studd, when he got to the end of his life, was sorry that he had sacrificed so much for Christ? This is what he wrote in his final letter home. He said, As I believe I am now nearing my departure from this world, I have but a few things to rejoice in, and they are these. That God called me to China, and I went in spite of the utmost opposition from all my loved ones that I joyfully acted as Christ told that young, rich young ruler to act, that I deliberately at the call of God gave up my life for this work, 
which was henceforth not for Sudan only, but for the whole unevangelized world. My only joy, therefore, are that when God has given me work to do, I have not refused it. That was his final letter home. Um, when he died in 1931, his, his final words, final word was written down. It was hallelujah. And then he died. And you kind of wonder, was it all worth it? And he stood before Jesus. And Jesus welcomed him into heaven and said, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Was it worth it? I think so. Well, we're about to go to the Lord's table this morning. And I want you to just spend a little time asking yourself that ultimate question. Who is Jesus? And if you've been around church for a while, you know the answer. Yep, he's the son of God. Okay, but before you answer too quickly with the right answer in your brain, just take a little time to examine your own life. And ask yourself the question, does every part of my life reflect the fact that I believe that truth? Do I really believe that Jesus is God, and does my life reflect that? So let's just take a couple minutes as we get ready to come before the Lord's table and reflect on that thought. Let's do that. Father, I pray that you would continue to teach us the answers to the great questions in our lives. We need you. Lord, we can come up with all kinds of answers to questions, but when it comes right down to it, Lord, it's it's the answers that are true are the ones that we have to live our lives by. And we pray, Father, that that you would continue to work in our lives, even as as we think about Jesus, who he is, what he's done for us, as we come before his table. In Jesus' name.